Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, my name is Jason Kuznicki. I am a research fellow here. And our guest this afternoon is Dr. Philip Zimbardo. Uh, Dr. Zimbardo is a professor emeritus in psychology at Stanford University. He is the author of a leading textbook and of other prominent teaching materials on the subject. He's written about shyness, experimentally induced paranoia, behavior modification, and the psychology of time. But what brings him here today and what he is most famous for is the 1971 Stanford Prison Experiment and the new book that he has written, The Lucifer Effect, Understanding How Good People Turn Evil. And uh, in this book, he's attempted to relate the findings from his experiment to uh, the current uh, situation with uh, detentions in Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo Bay and uh, the treatment of uh, detainees in U.S. custody during the war on terrorism. Uh, Dr. Zimbardo uh, is the president of the American Psychological Association, currently chair of the Council of Sci uh, Scientific Society Presidents, and uh, has uh, a wide variety of other uh, uh, credentials that I don't probably need to get into at this point. Uh, but what really, makes, what really makes his work interesting to libertarians, I think, is that it raises a lot of interesting questions for us. Libertarians tend to be naturally suspicious of authority figures and of arbitrary power, of course. Uh, but we're also quite individualistic, and we frequently doubt the power of social situations to influence behavior, perhaps to the degree that the Stanford Prison Experiment and similar research has suggested. So uh, this is very interesting research for us, and also, to some degree, very troubling research for us. And uh, that all adds up to what I hope will be a very stimulating presentation. And uh, we've also brought in... Uh, my colleague, Will Wilkinson, who has become a uh, uh, frequent commenter on social psychology topics at Cato and has, has become very interested in, in these topics recently. And uh, Julian Sanchez, who is a frequent contributor to Reason Magazine, a freelance journalist who has uh, written extensively about the war on terrorism and about detainee treatment, and also uh, has been preparing, as I understand it, a book involving uh, social psychology and uh, resistance to authority uh, of his own right. So uh, hopefully they will have some interesting things to say. And then after that, we will turn the uh, discussion over to you and uh, welcome questions from the audience. So without further ado, Thank you. Dr. Phillips and Barbara. I'm excited to be here. I bring greetings from San Francisco, where the Cato Institute started some years ago. Uh, we're sorry to be late, but I was teaching a course in the psychology of terrorism down in Shepherdstown, and it took two hectic hours to get here. Uh, but I'm here, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, uh, what I'm going to talk about is the psychology of evil, the looser effect in action, uh, and that's me, and that's you. Uh, I hope it'll be a hot talk, and uh, hopefully it'll be dazzling if, if, everything, if the technology holds up. So I begin with a basic question that theologians, philosophers, political scientists have long debated. What makes people go wrong? Understanding of the nature of evil. 
really want to understand, you know, are people born evil and, you know, become good over time? Are there evil seeds? Are there people who are basically inherently different from us? Uh, or do we all have the capacity for evil as well as for goodness, uh, as this uh, remarkable picture shows? Psychologists tend not to ask those big questions. We tend to ask more specific questions for which we have very good methodology, uh, uh, evaluation methodology, assessment methodology, especially the methodology of experimental field and, and laboratory methods. But I grew up as a little kid in the South Bronx. If you grew up in a, in a city, if you grew up in a ghetto, you grew up a medieval. And I always wondered why kids who were my friends, who I knew were good kids, ended up doing really bad stuff, getting involved in drugs, getting involved in lots of bad things, some going to jail, some getting killed, some killing people. And so before, long before I was a psychologist, I wanted to know what makes good people do bad things. I also was influenced by Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Because I had grown up to believe people were born good, people were good or bad, and there was a line, really a secure, fixed, impermeable line between good and evil. And that was kind of a safety net so that, you know, if you had not done anything bad, the, the notion was, you know, you were one of the good people and the bad people were on the other side. But this, this fiction by, by Robert Louis Stevenson said that when the good Dr. Jekyll invented this chemical and took it, he became the evil Mr. Hyde. And when the drug wore off, he went back across that line to become good again. And he couldn't resist one more trial since there was no human subjects committee to prevent self-experiments in those days. He, he became bad again. So essentially what I got out of reading that is that the line between good and evil was permeable. That people could cross that line. People who were good for some time or much of their life could, for some reason, in this case taking the drug, begin to do bad things. And maybe even bad people could be rescued, could be saved to become good again. Well, that was a fiction, and so the question in my mind as a psychologist is, what can we substitute for that mystical, magical elixir? And so my talk today is going to be essentially how social psychologists have produced similar effects that Stevenson had presented in a fiction in our laboratories. I want to start with this wonderful illusion by the artist M.C. Escher. If you t take a minute to look at it, some of you will focus on the white with the black as the background. Some of you will focus on the black with the white as the background. And if you focus on the white, you see a world full of angels. So here's the wings, here's little tutus, and here's an angel, here's an angel. But if you take a minute to look more deeply, suddenly what pops out are the demons uh, with the horns. Uh, and so if the white is the figure, there's angels. If the black is the figure and the white is the background, you see a world full of devils. What this tells me is the world is, has been, and probably always will be filled with good and evil because they are the yin and yang of the human condition. My argument is that people are not born good or born bad. There are, of course, some people who start off with brain defects or psychopathic personality, but they are the rare exception. I'm going to argue that most evil is done by ordinary, everyday people, but that we have the capacity, because we have this incredible mind, to do anything that is thinkable, anything any human being has ever done, as Robert Dunn tells us, that we could do. But looking at that good and evil image reminded me of my old days as a Catholic 
in which in the scriptures it says God's favorite angel was Lucifer. Lucifer means the light. In some scriptures he's described as the morning star, as Venus. It's never quite clear how he got that elevated status, but we know he was numero uno angel. And then one day God created Adam as his perfect creature and said all, all angels have to honor Adam. Lucifer and some other angels said, doesn't make sense. We're angels. He's a mere mortal. Mortals are probably corruptible. And also, we existed prior to him. God deals with that challenge, saying, you just committed two sins. The sin of disobedience to ultimate authority, God, and the sin of pride. And you know what happens, what pride goeth before the fall. So... So he, he gets Michael the Archangel, probably second in command, there's probably sibling rivalry there, to battle the, the, the Lucifer and the other angels. And Michael wins, and Lucifer loses. And paradoxically, it's God who creates hell as a place to put the fallen angels. And Lucifer goes from being the, the favorite angel to becoming the devil, to becoming Satan, Mephistopheles, whatever, whatever you want to call him. So for me, this is the arc of the most extraordinary cosmic transformation of God's favorite angel into the devil. You can't imagine a more extreme transformation. And in fact, clearly no one was there in that cosmic era. So there's some man or men who wrote this story. And it's really a story about what happens when you challenge authority. You go to hell. It doesn't matter how good you were before. You don't challenge authority. And I think, you know, obviously his church fathers wrote this. And the notion is you don't challenge authority. You don't challenge God. You don't challenge your parents. You don't challenge priests, et cetera, et cetera. So, again, given, given your orientation, Cato Institute, about authority, this really sets the stage. So, for me, it also meant that it means that I, it, it set the context for me investigating how ordinary people, not angels, first begin to do bad things. Not necessarily devilish things, but, but bad things. There are many definitions of evil. My psychological one is evil. It, yeah, the red doesn't come out so good. So evil is the exercise of power to intentionally harm psychologically uh, through verbal abuse, through prejudice, discrimination, to hurt physically and or to destroy mortally. And at the level of a nation or system, it's to commit crimes against humanity. If you Google the word evil, you come up with 136 million hits in a third of a second. If you put George W. Bush in evil, you come up with 2 million hits. Uh, partly because uh, he he's, has been running around since he first got in office, labeling everybody as the axis of evil, the evil empire, the evil dictators, and so forth. Uh, and some people say it also applies to the... Um, to the ascriber. Uh, older people in the audience, you know, if I said, you know, who are, are there any evil people? They said, yeah, we have Hitler, we have Stalin. They accounted for, you know, 10 to 20 million deaths. Recent historical analysis says Chairman Mao outdid both of them with his cultural leap, his, his great leap forward in the Cultural Revolution. At least 30 million Chinese citizens died because of, of his ideology, because of his, his flawed policies. Almost four years ago, all of you saw the same images that I saw on television, uh, leaked out from Abu Ghraib prison, horrific images of American soldiers abusing uh, detainees. Uh, so, so red is not showing up on the system. Uh, I don't know if we can, we can adjust anything. Uh, but it's, essentially it says, I was shocked by those pictures as you were, but I wasn't surprised because I had seen similar pictures from my Stanford prison experiment 
1971, our guards stripped prisoners naked. Uh, they put bags over their head. They sexually humiliated them. And so when the Bush administration and uh, the, the Pentagon, uh, in the form of uh, General Myers, who was the head of Joint Chiefs of Staff, came on immediately after, on 60 Minutes, and said, this is the work of a few rogue soldiers. 99.9% of American soldiers are good and honorable. This is the work of a few bad apples. I said, that could be. But what I know from the Stanford Prison Study is we started with really good apples, and it was the barrel that was bad. It was the situation that corrupted them. And so that's my hypothesis. Well, how am I going to test this? I'm a psychologist in Stanford, but I, 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 I was invited to go on NPR because one of my students who were working for NPR had seen those images and contacted me and said, hey, that's what you presented in class. So I went on, I said, yeah, so media loves you know, th those metaphors, bad barrel versus bad apple. One of the people who listened to that program was Gary Myers. He was the lawyer for one of the guards. The guard was Chip Frederick. He was a sergeant who was supposed to be in charge of Tier 1A. And he said, would you like to be on our defense team? And at first I said, no. I mean, the guy did horrible things. He said, but you could have the evidence to, to test your hypothesis because you would have total access to him, personal interviews, family interviews, his whole, his whole background, and you could have psychological testing done of him. You would have access to all the investigative reports and all the images. So I said, sure, I couldn't resist that. And so I want to start with a case study of evil. Since evil is vague, and so what we're going to do today is say, how do we understand the evil that occurred at Abu Ghraib? And what I want to show you is some of the images that you've seen, but many you haven't seen. That the, uh, This is really shown in public. The Pentagon has obviously suppressed this. And what I've done is to try to make it even more emotionally dramatic. I've added motion and I've added some sound. But again, all of these were from the cameras of the soldiers. What nobody has said is these are not, in quote, real soldiers. These are army reservists, weekend soldiers, who have zero training for, mission, for the, the mission of a, a combat. And they are military police. Their job is supposed to be to protect the prisoners. And we want to know why did these abuses happen only in one place, in Tier 1A and only on the night shift, not Tier 1A in the day shift. So it's situationally specific. So let's look at these and then we'll entertain the question. How do we understand this behavior? So let's take a minute to go down to that dungeon together.
So I end the sequence with the ironic comparison of, of Leonardo da Vinci's humanity with this prisoner who was mentally ill, who covered himself in his shit every day. And Chip Frederick had to roll him in dirt so he wouldn't stink or sit on him, put him in a gurney and sit on him and complained that, you know, he's mentally ill, he shouldn't be here. There were prisoners who had tuberculosis. He complained they shouldn't be here. There were boys there that were being abused. And the, and the higher-ups said, it's war. You know, deal with the situation in every, any way you can. So here's uh, former Secretary of Defense Rumsfeld who comes down, Janice Karpinski, who was supposed to be in charge of the prison but never visited it. They want to know, who are the bad apples? If you ask a who question, you bias the answer. Who questions can only lead to individuals, personally. So I want to reframe and say, what is responsible? It could be people, but maybe it could also be that bad barrel. So how do psychologists go about trying to understand such transformations of human character? The, the first way, and the typical way, is we call it dispositional. You focus on what is inside the people, the personality characteristics, the brain effects, the genetic background. You want to understand the person, because individuals are the actors. Social psychologists like me come along and say, yeah, people are important, but what's equally important is the social context, the barrel, the things outside of the person. It wasn't until I began to, to get deeply involved in understanding Abu Ghraib that I realized the third level of analysis is the system. This, these are the broader extrinsic circumstances that create the situation and maintain it. This is legal, economic, uh, cultural, historical. And so the key is, if you want to change bad behavior, what we have focused on, we in our society, since we are focused only on the individual, is we tr try to change the person. If we're benign, we do therapy, re-education, we imprison them. Uh, uh, we deal only with the person. But if the situation is what's really causing it, then no matter what you do to the person, you're not going to change it. And so sometimes we have to by understanding how the situation influences individual behavior, we are now in a position to try to prevent uh, that behavior. But if the, si if the system is creating and maintaining those situations, then we have to understand where the power is in the system to try to change it at that level. So the looser effect says we have to understand human character transformations. When ordinary people do, uh, become perpetrators of evil, it's through the dynamic interplay of these three forces. <clears throat> what do people bring into the situation? What does the situation bring out of people? And what are the dominant systems that create and maintain uh, that situation? So the looser effect, uh, this is the hardcover that's also now in paperback, uh, really is a celebration of the human mind's infinite capacity to make any of us kind or cruel, caring or indifferent, creative or destructive, and that same mind that pushes some of us to be villains also pushes some of us to become heroes. So I end the book and I want to end my presentation today by focusing also on what makes ordinary people uh, become heroes. There's a wonderful cartoon in The New Yorker, which is essentially my whole talk. It summarizes, I'm neither a good cop, Jerome, nor a bad cop. Like yourself, I'm a complex amalgam of positive and negative personality traits that emerge or not depending on the circumstances. So, so that's the main point. If you remember nothing from my talk, if you just remember this cartoon. Um, a little Jewish boy in the Bronx, Stanley Milgram. We were high school classmates in James Monroe High School. He wondered whether the Holocaust could happen in America. And people said, no, that's Nazi Germany. It's 1939. It's a German national character. He said, how do you know? Would you electrocute a strange if Hitler forced you to? People said, no way. 
what he did was he did an experiment. Actually, he did 16 different experiments with 1,000 ordinary citizens, 500 in New Haven, Connecticut, 500 in Bridgeport, and he used no students. These were, these were adults from a, gen, a, a general population. Barb is construction workers, secre, secretaries, 20, age 20 to 50. And he said, I'm interested in how and why people give in to unjust, immoral uh, authority. And so here's the reason why he started the study. And so in his experiment, very simply put, he says, we science, we psychologists want to help people improve their memory because memory is critical for success in life. That is the ideology. That's the big lie. It's a, it's a big, the equivalent of national security, which is our current big lie. And so you come there, and there's two of you, and he says, one of you will be teacher, one of you will be the learner. The teacher is going to give the learner something to learn. When he gets it right, you, you reward him. When he gets it wrong, you punish him. We want to understand whether judicious use of punishment will improve memory. So this guy is going to be the learner. The other guy is going to be the teacher. And you start off, he's doing well, and he makes mistakes. And the experiment in the lab coat uh, uh, shows him this shock apparatus. When he makes a mistake, you give him, the, you press the first button. It's 15 volts. In this shock generator, there are 30 switches starting with 15 volts. He doesn't even feel. And each increment is also a small one, 15, 30, et cetera. But as the guy began, makes more and more mistake, he's in the other room, he begins to scream. And, and you are a good guy. You turn to the experiment and say, sir, who will be responsible if something happens to him? The experiment says, I will be, of course. Continue. And now the guy is screaming more and more. I have a heart condition. I don't want to go on. And you're a good person. You turn to the experiment and say, sir, you know, uh, I don't really want to go on. He says, I'm sorry. You have a contract. The contract says you must go on. And now all the ways you get out of a situation are not working. This guy who started as a just authority, he represents science, he wants to help people, now has turned into a fascist. He said, I don't care about this guy. You've got to keep shocking. When it gets up to 330 volts, the guy screams. There's a thud and silence. And you say, are you okay in there? And you, and you turn to the experience and say, sir, something's wrong. Somebody should go in and see him. The experience says, I'm sorry, you don't understand the rules. Failure to respond is an error of omission, which is the same as an error of commission. You must continue to shock. Okay, now these are 1,000 people, ages 20 to 50, ordinary people. If you did the most minimal critical thinking, you should say to yourself, how can I be helping him improve his memory if he's unconscious or dead? The answer is no, no. And so everybody should quit. In fact, very few people quit, as you'll see. And so when it gets up to, up to here, it says severe shock. The last two buttons are triple X, the pornography of power. And so the question is, who would go all the way to the end? Milgram described the study, as, as I did to you, to 40 psychiatrists and said, what percent of American citizens would go to 450 volts? Their average answer was only 1% because that's sadistic behavior and only sadists would do it. What's wrong with that? 
psychiatrists are, are trained only in the dispositional orientation. They believe everything is in people's head. They ignored all the social situational variables, the experiment in the lab coat, the contracts, uh, uh, the roles, your teacher, your learner, uh, the impressive equipment, the pressure put on you to keep going. The fact that authority says, I will be responsible, that's diffusion of responsibility. So you put all of those things together and you have a powerful situation. They ignore it. But the point is, they're saying 1%, and we're going to see, is it, how much more than 1%? So the data are, this is the number of people who drop out at each level, from 15 all the way up. No one drops out before 285 volts. When it gets up to 330, two people drop out. When it gets to the next level, one, 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 two-thirds go all the way to the very end, 65%. So this was shocking. This was stunning. Nobody wanted to hear that. We want to believe, you know, people are good. But so you put together all of these social situational forces and you're getting ordinary people to do this really terrible thing. But I said he, ran, he did a thousand subjects. That was only one study. He actually did 16 different studies. And what he shows is it's like putting a dial on human nature. In each study, he varies one social psychological variable. So in study 16... You get 91% going all the way. If you come in and you see somebody like you go all the way, you go all the way. In study number five, if you see people like you rebel, 90% of the time you rebel. So it says our behavior is powerfully influenced by other people. Other people are models, positive or negative models. What about women? Uh, study 13, no different than men, 65%. What sh and so if the experiment is in another room, uh, you're less likely to shock. If the victim is next to you, you're less likely to shock. So, so this, this dial on human nature says you can eliminate the effect or you can make it up to 90%, not by putting more or less good people in, but just varying one aspect of the social situation. All research is artificial. It attempts to mimic things in the real world. So we always want to say, well, what's, what are the real world parallels? What is the external validity of this concept of blind obedience to authority? Sadly... There is powerful evidence. In 1978, 912 American citizens committed suicide or were murdered by their friends and family in the jungles of Guyana because of blind obedience to their minister, Reverend Jim Jones, head of People's Temple. That was in San Francisco, near where I live, and in L.A. And this was a, a sect of the Church of Christ's disciples. It went very badly wrong after a while, and he moved his sect from San Francisco and LA to the jungles of Guyana, which was a socialist state, and began to abuse the, his parishioners. There were more than 1,000 there. Concerned relatives who couldn't get in touch with their relatives got Congressman Ryan from Oakland to go down with an NBC crew to find out what was happening. They killed the congressman. They killed some, some of the NBC crew members. And Jones goes to the people and says, the, the, the military is going to come in and kill us all, so we're going to commit revolutionary suicide. And what's interesting is you can go on the web and listen to the tape recording of that last hour where he persuades virtually everybody there to commit suicide. And it begins with mothers, be kind to your children. Give them the medicine first. Medicine is cyanide. It doesn't hurt. Big lie because it produces convulsions. Then give it to your parents. So you have people killing their children. There were 250 kids killing their parents and then taking the drug or being injected. So here's one of the most powerful demonstrations in recent time of this blind obedience to authority. And again, if you go on the web and just put in Jonestown last hour, they have both the speech and a typescript of it. 
So while Milgram is doing that, I'm at NYU reading The Lord of the Flies. And if you remember, the key in The Lord of the Flies is these good boys, when they run out of food, the only food on the island is wild pigs. But they can't kill the pig because the pigs are, you know, you can't, thou shalt not kill is a commandment. Goulding has one of the boys take his clothes off, paint himself, and get the other boys to do it. And now not only do they kill the pig, they enjoy killing. And so the whole, and then the whole fascism takes over from democracy. Big boys beat up the little boys. And so my students asked me, well, is that psychologically valid? I said, I don't know. That is, is enough to change your external appearance to change your internal moral values. So I said, let's do an experiment. And the experiment is we're going to get women, students, we're going to take away the individuality, put them in hoods, take away their names, give them numbers, tell them that their job is to stress other women who are trying to be creative under stress. Obviously, that, that was, that's the lie in the experiment. Uh, we give them a sample of the shock they're going to give. They're going to produce the stress, and the women are going to try to ignore it to be, to be uh, creative. The comparison is other women from the same uh, school who are made to feel individuated, stand out. They have name tags on them. So all we're varying is one thing, whether they're anonymous or not, but everything else is the same. They then see me behind the screen uh, and the first of two victims, and they have 20 opportunities to shock her. When she's finished, she leaves, and the second one comes in. The data very simply are, here's the first 10 trials, and here's the second 10 trials. The women who are individuated start low and stay low. The other women in the same situation, except they're anonymous, they start twice as high, and over time, they shock more and more. This is a statistically significant increase. I redid this study with the Belgian military, same effect. We redid it instead of the hoods with masks. Instead of shock, uh, people are throwing styrofoam balls. The conclusion is anything that makes you anonymous, that you feel nobody knows who I am, and you're put in a position that gives you a situation that gives you permission to be aggressive or hostile, increases the likelihood that you will do that. And this is what we know about terrorism. I mean, you conceal your appearance, and you're more likely, you feel freer to engage in, in uh, these kind of acts. An anthropologist at Harvard read this study and said, you know what, if it's true, then it ought to make a difference if warriors go to battle changing their appearance or not. What do you mean a difference? A difference in how they treat their victims. So he says warriors in some cultures don't change their appearance. In others, it's like the Lord of the Flies. They change their appearance with paint. They put on masks. Or in many cultures, like ours, we put them in uniforms. He found 23 cultures that had two bits of information in the human area files. These are files that missionaries, anthropologists, psychologists put together. He, so there are 23 cultures where there's evidence that warriors change their appearance in 15 cultures and they don't in eight. The measure was not pressing a button. Do they kill, mutilate, or torture their victims? The most extreme kind of behavioral outcome. In 13 cultures, they're high on this and 10, they're low. If they don't change their appearance, only one kills, tortures, mutilate. We're interested in what's the red zone. And the red zone is 12 of 13, 90% of cultures that warriors change their appearance before going to battle, make themselves anonymous, kill, torture, mutilate. So what this means is culture has wisdom. You want all wars about old men sending young men to kill other young men for some reason, for some ideology. And therefore, you know, you put them in a uniform to change their appearance. And they're more likely to do to what you want. But when the war is over, you know what? It's against the law in every country to continue to wear a uniform. We want you to go back to being a pacifist, a peace-loving citizen. 
So good people can do bad things by unjust authority pushing you in that direction, by making you feel anonymous, meaning you feel you're not personally accountable. Also, you can simply think of the enemy, think of the other as the enemy, as an object. It's called dehumanization. You take away the humanity of other people. That means you exaggerate the difference between you and them. Dehumanization for me is like a cortical cataract. You know, a, a retinal cataract means you can't see. People, your vision is blurred. A cortical cataract is like, is like a covering on your brain so that when you look out, you don't see other people as people. They're blurred. They're objects. Once they're objects, you begin to see them as less than human, not as similar to your kind or kin. I think it's the most basic process in genocide, in mass murders, certainly in rape as terror as going on now in, in East Congo, and all of prejudice. It operates at the individual level, but also the system level. Societies can induce uh, a dehumanization. We saw this recently in Rwanda. The Hutu government that was a minority that was in charge one day goes on the radio and says, your neighbors, the Tutsis, are cockroaches. Like cockroaches, they must be destroyed. And they give every man a machete and every woman a club. And in 100 days, they kill 800,000 of their neighbors. And the, and the evidence was that killers expressed no regret. One of the women who did this said, the children didn't cry because they knew us. They just made big eyes. We killed too many to even count. She said, and this is the justification of evil. She said, we were doing them a favor by killing them because... They were now orphans who faced a hard life. Their fathers had been butchered with machetes. Their mothers had been taken away to be raped and killed. So we did them a big favor. The interesting thing is nobody thinks of what they do as evil. The human mind has infinite capacity to rationalize and justify anything. The beginning of Mein Kampf, Hitler says, in dealing with the Jewish question, I'm doing the Lord's work. That's the Lord's work. Then obviously we're all in trouble. Um, this brings us to the Stanford Prison Study, which I'll go through very, very quickly. It starts with an ad in the paper of wanted college students for a prison study for two weeks. We did this in the summer at Stanford, and these were kids from all over the country who had just finished summer school at Stanford or Berkeley. 75 people volunteered. We gave them all personality tests. We picked the two dozen that were the most normal and healthy across all the personality tests and interviews. And then we flipped a coin. One's a guard, one's a prisoner. So it means on day one, on August 14, 1971, all the kids we had were normal, healthy, slightly above average, and college students. And there was no reason why somebody should be a guard or prisoner. They all knew it was an experiment, except we, I wanted to start it in a dramatic way. I wanted to take, ha have their freedom taken away by the authorities. And what I did is I recruited the Palo Alto police to make arrests. Uh, this is Stanford University. It's, it's a, literally a paradise that I'm going to turn into a hell very quickly. So we wanted the authorities to take away their freedom, as happens in the real world, because then only authorities can give it back to you. That the only way you get out of prison is through the parole hearing, not because you say, I quit, I'm, I'm not interested in the study anymore.
Indeed we were. So, so now we, we are uh, dehumanizing the prisoners. We take away their names. They just become numbers. The guards have symbols of power, billy clubs, uh, handcuffs, whistles, and silver-reflecting sunglasses, idea I got from the movie Cool Hand Luke, which, again, makes them anonymous. Um, and it starts, as you saw, with the picture of a grape. It always starts with that small first step of, of push-ups, of jumping jacks, and then guards get bored. Boredom is a major motivation for evil because when you're bored, you have to begin to do something novel and different. So, over, so each day, the guards work eight-hour shifts. The prisoners obviously live there. Each day when the guards come in, they, they ramp up their level of violence, the level of aggression, the level of humiliation. And then they got them to engage in humiliating tasks, cleaning toilet bowls out with their bare hands, uh, stripping prisoners naked, sexually taunting them. And then it always descends halfway through into sexually degrading activities, literally much like we saw at Abu Ghraib. That boy you saw, the first one to get arrested, was the first one to break down. He had an emotional breakdown in 36 hours. And he provided a model of how to get out. Each day after that, another prisoner had similar reaction. We brought to student health uh, and had to be released. Um, the study was supposed to go two weeks. I had to end it in six days. It was literally out of control. Uh, at the end of the talk, I'll tell you exactly uh, who forced me to end it uh, and why, why I ended it early. We have a wonderful website, prisonexp.org. I invite you to go. It has a slideshow of 70 slides, video clips, discussion questions, uh, links to almost everything that I've written about it, but also links to many, many different things uh, in correction, American corrections and, and European corrections. Uh, it's also in six different languages, so in German, French, Polish, Italian, Farsi, as well as English. So very quickly, the problem is when we, when we hear about evil, when we hear about Jonestown, Branch Davidians, Abu Ghraib, we come, to the situ- we come to the end product. The question is evil is always a process and that we have to find out how did it begin? Why did somebody, why did somebody volunteer to be a suicide bomber? Why did somebody join uh, this cult? So, so some of the social processes that grease the slippery slope of evil is mindlessly taking that first small step. Dehumanization of others. Making yourself anonymous. Uh, diffusion of personal responsibility to the group. Blind obedience to authority. Uncritical conformity to group norms. Usually groups are, are, are valuable to us. Some groups are not. Some gangs, some cults, uh, some military groups, some w- within any organization within Enron, there's always a subgroup that 
not, there's often a subgroup that is trying to push you toward immoral, illegal, unethical behavior. Another kind of evil is the evil of inaction, passive acceptance, passive tolerance of the existing evil. And lastly, all evil begins with an ideology, the big positive value that when you accept that, it justifies the evil processes uh, to get to that, to that ideology. Dostoevsky says, nothing is easier than to denounce the evildoer. You just point him out, as they did in the Inquisition. Nothing is more difficult than understanding him. When I give this talk, people say, oh, you're saying people are not accountable for their behavior. No, no, not at all. Chip Frederick was guilty. You are personally accountable for your behavior. Understanding the causal um, contributions changes, doesn't excuse it. It changes Legally, in legal terms, it changes the um, – it should change the severity of the sentencing. It should mitigate the severity. Understanding is not excusing. Psychology is not excusiology. So you are always personally accountable, but it's by understanding what pushed the majority of people in this direction means you can begin to try to prevent it. So again, what are the real parallels you know, to this little experiment in a basement at Stanford? So here are the prisoners awaiting parole board with the bags over their heads, legs chained. And here we are in, in, in Iraq with the bags over the head. Here we are in Guantanamo Bay, a Gitmo. Well, now, they, now they use sandbag covers. Um, uh, here's forced simulation of fellatio that you saw. Uh, here's British soldiers getting prisoners to naked and simulate sodomy. On the evening of five at Stanford Experiment, in an experiment that everybody knew was an experiment, the guards told the prisoners, half of you are female camels, bend over. The other half are male camels. Get behind and hump them. And they laughed because hump is a play on words. And they were simulating sodomy in five days. College students in an experiment here in, 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 um, in Britain, I don't know how long it took. There's actually a British movie called The Mark of Cain about, about this episode. Obviously, I want to see parallels between my little study and real-world events. But James Schlesinger, he was former Secretary of Defense, he, he was part of one of the investigating, uh, he was the head of one of the investigating committees. And he says, the potential for abusive treatment of detainees during the global war on terrorism was entirely predictable based on a fundamental understanding of the principles of social psychology, coupled with an awareness of numerous known environmental risk factors. Findings from the field of social psychology suggest that the conditions of war and the dynamics of detainee operations carry inherent risk for what? For human mistreatment and therefore must be approached with great caution, careful planning and training. And there was none by the military. He then goes on to say, psychologists have attempted to understand how and why individuals and groups who usually act humanely can sometimes act otherwise in certain circumstances. That's the cartoon I just showed you, and that's what the looser effect is all about. And then he he concludes, the landmark Stanford study provides a cautionary tale for all military detention operations. They should have known from 30 years before that if you give guards absolute power over prisoners and you have no surveillance, no supervision, you're going to get abuse. In three months, there was never a senior officer went down to that dungeon. That's why it happened at night. In the daytime, there was a lot of surveillance. You never get these abuses if you have uh, strict military discipline and oversight and surveillance. In fact, General Tugubat, Antonio Tugubat, the highest-ranking Filipino uh, general in, in the military, he did the most thorough investigation. 
And he concludes, military intelligence interrogators and other interrogators from the CIA actively requested that MP guards set physical and mental conditions for, in quote, favorable interrogation witnesses. By not communicating standards, policies, and plans to soldiers, these leaders conveyed a tacit approval of abusive behavior toward prisoners. Such abuses do not occur with military discipline and oversight of standard operating procedures. Not only did he say this, he listed all of the officers who he said uh, should, should be found uh, guilty of dereliction of duty. For that wonderful report, he got fired. They told him, do not submit your request for promotion. You will never get it. And so this is how the system protects itself. All the soldiers involved got prison sentences from, from a few months. Chip Frederick, the guy I defended, got eight years. Uh, another prisoner got ten years. The woman, Linda England, got three years. And not a single officer went to trial. Janice Karpinski, I broken from uh, general to, to um, colonel, but she was also in the Army Reserve. It's also strange. They put her in charge of all the prisons in Iraq. She had zero experience running any prison. And so that was a formula for failure, obviously. I want to very quickly say, so I, I try to say up to now how situations can influence behavior. Let me quickly show how systems, how top-down systems can, through propaganda and perversion of education, create evil. How do you transform obedient school children into blindly obedient Nazi youth? You create an ideology, you create a system, and that system perverts the justice system, it perverts the military, it perverts the police, and mostly it perverts education. And you create a hero, Hitler, and you have posters everywhere, propaganda, so kids want to be like Hitler, people want to, kids want to dress like, uh, like uh, the Nazi soldiers. And they are forced from first grade on to read comic books like this, which are comics about the Jew as the wily fox. And kids read them. And these were comic books. Each, each year was a different kind that they had to read. And the books were about geography, like we had when we were kids. And, he, and it says, here's, here's, uh, uh, here's American Indians, here's Chinese, here's Japanese. Uh, and here's the devil. And on the devil's back are Jews, like this. And then not only did the kids have to read it, but it was really insidious was the kids had to copy the script. So that means the kids wrote the story. And here's a story comparing the great, uh, wonderful, beautiful Aryan worker with the dirty Jew boss. And in these things, every page is every stereotype, every demonizing stereotype you could think of. So here's the lecherous Jew seducing the, the Aryan woman. His, his son is embarrassed. Have, here's the hypocritic guy, a Jew. He's walking with his wife. Here's a kid who has no shoes. Here's the Jewish landlord kicking, evicting an old man and a child. And it goes on and on, all the stereotypes of Jewish lawyer. And so if a kid reads that as educational material, the conclusion is well, it's okay to kick Jews out of your school, to restrict them to ghettos, to send them away from your country, and then later on to send them to slave camps. And in the books, it gives you the conclusion. Therefore, kick them out of your school, don't allow them in, into your, your, your playgrounds and so forth, and then finally expel them from your country. So I'm saying this is the insidious way that a system perverts the mentality of its citizens. And then the final solution is you put them in ghettos, you make them wear stars. It's, it's legal, and all this is done legally. So first, Jews had to wear stars. Jews were not allowed to have pets. Small thing. But again, it's restricting your freedom. Not allowed to work certain jobs. Not allowed to work any jobs. Have to live in a certain place. Then have to, have to get on the transports to go to the concentration camps. So I'm arguing that we need a paradigm shift in psychology, especially psychiatry, medicine, religion, economics, and law, away from the medical model, which deals with only the individual. So I'm a doctor. You come to see me. You have a set of symptoms. I treat you. And you do it. 
at some point I say, wait a minute, everybody has the same symptoms. This is a flu epidemic. And what I have to do is I have to switch to a public health model. And it's a model where I'm going to inoculate healthy people to prevent the spread of the disease. And I want to argue that there are situational and systemic vectors of disease that are in our society. Bullying is an epidemic. Racism is epidemic. Violence is epidemic. These, and these have been treated at the individual level, and you can never change that behavior focusing only on the individual level. So Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was, as you know, a Russian poet, who was in prison in, Gulag, in Stalin's Gulag Archipelago for a number of years, says the line between the good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. It's not an abstraction. It's not out there. These are the decisions you make every day about cheating or stealing, little immoral things, little unethical things. And once you begin to cross that line, once you press 15 volts, you've got to know in your mind that 450 volts is waiting for you. So at this point, oh, we have a, another wonderful website, looseureffect.com. It has all of the comic book things. Uh, what I didn't get a t- chance to show you is the, dehumanization, the dehumanizing photos of Americans lynching and burning blacks alive and, and putting themselves in the pictures with their children. And they became the start of the postcard industry in America. That people put, took these pictures, put them on postcards, and sent them to relatives. And I have, I have a whole set of those. Uh, so I, I think you'll find, find it interesting. Also, there's two Protestant ministers who said a lot of what you say is really a reinterpretation of scriptures. So we have uh, Lucifer goes to church. So we have, they, they have a theology blog each week that I think, I think you'll find, find interesting. I want to switch very quickly in the last few minutes. We're focusing on what makes good people do evil, but what makes ordinary people do good? So the, so the first thing is, you know, I'm saying people have the capacity, people have the capability to do anything, anything that's imaginable, anything that any human being's ever done, we could do as well. So I want to end on a positive note. Heroism as the antidote to evil. I want to argue that the more, more people in our culture that develop a heroic imagination, the more, the more moral soldiers you have to combat evil. And so we're developing a new set of programs that try to create a new educational system that instills in every child the self-belief that I'm a hero in waiting and I will act heroically when my time comes. And so I'm, so I'm changing my whole life from a little kid in the ghetto of evil doing all this, this horrible research to focusing only on heroism. In the last chapter of the book, I introduced the concept of the banality of heroism, which is the, the counterpoint of Hannah Arendt's famous statement about the banality of evil. And what I'm saying is that most heroism is done by ordinary people, not extraordinary people. The deed is extraordinary. The person is ordinary. In fact, the problem we have is Gandhi, Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa. They're the wrong heroes for us because they have organized their whole life around heroic sacrifice. When we look at them, I'm happy they're there, but I can't do that. Same thing, our kids, we give them the fabulous heroes. Superman, Spider-Man, they're the wrong hero role models because the kids can never be like that. So the argument is most heroes are everyday people. So what I'm trying to do is demystify and democratize heroism that say most people are heroes and usually you're a hero only once in your life because you have to be in a situation that elicits that. In fact, here's a physical hero, this famous picture of the, they call it Tank Man, Chinese students are protesting that they want more freedom, and the government comes and starts killing them. 
And this kid comes out. There's a row of tanks going to crush the, crush the rebellion, literally crush the rebellion. And he argues with, with the, the tank commander. And to his credit, the tank commander turns around and goes away. Now, we don't know what happened to this guy. Some say he was killed. Some say he's in detention. But here's a, here's a heroic act of physical courage. Joe Darby is the guy who stopped the abuse at Abu Ghraib. He is the most ordinary person in the universe. In fact, people in his hometown were upset that he was a hero because they said he's nothing. He's never done anything. His buddy gave him the CD with all the pictures. There were more than a thousand of these pictures. I've only shown you a few. He looks at these and he says, they're funny. Who ever heard of people piled naked in a pyramid? As he looked at more and more, he said, this is horrible. We're supposed to be bringing freedom and democracy to these people. We're humiliating them. He takes the CD and he's the lowest rank army reservist. He was not, he was not at Abu Ghraib, so he was not part of, a part of the, the group. He brings it to a senior criminal investigator and says, sir, you have to look at this. And that started the investigation. Was he a hero? They had to put him in hiding for three years because his buddies... And people in his hometown wanted to kill him. Then they had to put his mother and wife in hiding because people wanted to kill them since they couldn't get him. His hometown newspaper said, Joe Darby, the snitch. He became the enemy because he, his act humiliated the American military, uh, humiliated the Bush administration. I just came back from, I spent a week in Auschwitz, and I discovered there's this wonderful woman, a, famous, a Polish hero, who saved nearly 2,500 Jewish children who were in, the, in the, the Warsaw Ghetto. She heard about the terrible things. Her kids, everybody, people were dying of typhoid. She got somebody to, to, to give a false certificate that she was a nurse so she could go in. And she had to convince Jewish parents to give her their children. They don't know who she is. They know she's not Jewish. Saying, I want to save your children. We don't know what's going to happen. I'll put their names on a list. And if you survive, we'll, re- we'll, we'll bring you back together. And she put the names of the kids in a jar and buried it in, in her yard. And, but the cr- critical thing here is she couldn't do it alone. What is really important for, for successful heroism is to start a social network. That's Gandhi's passive resistance. <laughs> That's really the, the, the key to civil rights. That's the key to, to um, Nelson Mandela's success. They, they are the individual we see, but they always started a social network. So that's critical, teaching kids the social skills to get other people to share in your vision. And what she did was she went in and took these kids out in valises, in coffins, uh, uh, in, in various ways. She found a sewer that kids could go into and come out, and she hid them. But she had 20 other people, Polish Catholics, who were involved because they had to move these kids from place to place. Somebody snitched on her. They took her to prison. They tortured her. She refused to give the names. They broke her legs. She escaped from the prison and should have been a big hero. The communists took over when the Nazis left, and she was simply a Jew lover. The communists were equally equally anti-Semitic. And it wasn't until Israel declared her righteous among the nations that finally people in Poland said, oh, my God, we got a hero. And so here she was when, uh, right after she escaped, woman driving a truck, and she just died last week at 98. And it took her all, all of her life for anybody to say she's a hero. So again, what's interesting about heroes is it's socially constructed, it's culturally determined, it, it depends on, on the, hero, on the, the uh, historical epic. Here's another Polish hero, Christina Maslach, who stopped the Stanford prison study. She came down uh, on Thursday night, uh, I had started dating her, and she looks at this thing, and I'm saying, oh, here's, here's, here's the 10 o'clock toilet run. 
I'm now in my mind the prison superintendent. I'm seeing this terrible thing, and I'm saying, oh, good, the guards are doing their job. Prisoners with bags over their heads yelling at the prisoners, chained. She looks at the same thing with a different definition of situation and says to me, three minutes, says to me, it's terrible what you're doing to those boys. They're not prisoners. They're, not, they're boys, and you are responsible. And she runs out. And I run after her that we have a big argument. And suddenly she said, look, I don't think I want to continue dating you. I thought you were loving and caring. What I'm seeing is somebody I don't know, that you are a different person. And if this is what you really are, I'm out of here. And so that was, that was the, the, the slap in the face. And so I ended the study the next day. And, and the, the good news is... <laughs> So I came to my senses and married her. <laughs> and, and we have lived happily ever after. <laughs> so, so, sit, so I have three minutes. So situations have the power to do three things. The same situation that can inflame the hostile imagination some to stimulate people to do bad things, you know, whether it's at Enron or, or, or Tycho or any, any of the, the big swindles or at Abu Ghraib or at Guantanamo. That same situation can inspire the heroic imagination of others. But most people are passive. Most people do nothing. You know why? Because our mothers say, don't get involved. Mind your own business. And you have to say, Mama, humanity is my business. I must be involved. And so I want to end with the sense that we are starting programs in Detroit. We develop educational curriculum, uh, the literature of heroism. We're developing materials for college teachers and courses that encourage children, family, everyone to develop the heroic imagination, which is think of yourself as a hero in waiting for some situation to provide the catalyst for action. To be a hero involves two things. You take action when other people don't, and you defend an ideal or moral principle. And you do it out of sociocentric values, not egocentric. So you have to suppress your egocentricity. I want to end with this wonderful little piece that you probably heard about this guy, Wesley Autry, the New York subway hero. He's on a station in New York, 137th Street, where City College is. A white guy falls on the tracks. 75 people there, they all freeze. He's got a reason not to get involved. He's got two little girls. He gives them to a stranger, and he jumps on the tracks. And, this is, and he says, I did what anyone could do. Jumping on the tracks is no big deal. But the moral imperative is I did what everyone ought to do. So let's just look at this, and then, then we'll end open for uh, comments.
So one day you'll be in a new situation with three paths. Path one, you go along with others, you become a perpetrator of evil. Path two, you do nothing. You're guilty of the evil in action. But path three is you go straight ahead and become a hero. And as I said, all that matters is that heroes don't have anything special about them. You don't need to be more religious. You don't need to be more empathic. You simply have to take action on behalf of others and suppress your egocentrism. The important thing is you first have to think it and then you have to do it. And with that, I want to thank you. We want to oppose systems of, uh, uh, evil systems of power at home and abroad and advocate for respect of personal dignity, justice, and peace. Thank you so much. Uh, because of our slightly late start, we're going to have a bit abbreviated comments from our two respondents and then hopefully still have some time for questions from the audience. So, uh, Will? Good afternoon. Um, I apologize for my lack of uh, audiovisual assistance here, uh, so I'll try to be as uh, dazzling as I can personally. Uh, and I'll try to uh, keep it short. Uh, thank you so much for a, a fascinating, uh, uh, fascinating lecture and presentation. Um, the book, The Lucifer Effect, um, is a powerful tonic work aimed at, um, according to the subtitle, understanding how good people turn evil. And any work at all that helps us better understand the horrors of Auschwitz or Mylai or Rwanda or closer to home, the dehumanization and wanton cruelty of Abu Ghraib, is uh, most welcome and merits our closest attention. Um, now, I, I'll be the first to admit that I am scarcely qualified to comment on the details of the work in social psychology uh, that Professor Zimbardo recruits uh, to the purpose of answering this question. Uh, so I'm going to set aside the methodology and interpretation of psychological experiments and take a rather more uh, global perspective. Um, and I'll also be brazenly conjectural, um, but hopefully that'll be useful in a, a stimulating sort of way. Uh, so for starters, uh, my uh, quite global question is, I wonder whether understanding how good people turn evil is exactly the right question. Um, what is the target of explanation here? Uh, I think that's actually trickier than it might seem at first. And the reason for that is that the normal case can sometimes seem like an anomaly if you live inside the anomaly. And life inside the United States at the beginning of the 21st century is far from the natural human state. Uh, what seems to us odd uh, may not in fact be odd. We may be the odd ones. Uh, so here's an analogy to uh, help uh, illustrate my point. Um, many students, when they begin studying uh, the economics of development, the economics of how it is that countries grow rich, uh, a lot of times they think the question is, why are some societies so poor? Um, but that's a rich person's question. Uh, relative poverty, hunger, illness, you know, premature death, etc., don't really require a special explanation because that's the baseline of the human condition. The rare deviations from the baseline cry out for attention and, and explanation, and they hold the key to understanding the baseline as well. How do societies ever get rich? It strikes me that Zimbardo's question may be a little bit like 
the question of why some places are poor. The question of why it is that human beings are tribal, conformist, disposed to terrible violence, and easily organized by authority into acts of dehumanizing cruelty may simply be to ask why human nature is what it is. Uh, maybe that's just what people are like in the normal case, and goodness has never been the default. Perhaps the better question is, why are we ever cooperative, cosmopolitan, caring, peaceful, and good? Uh, the Stanford experiment and Abu Ghraib and other similar things may simply be efflorescences of our base nature, enabled by contexts where the normal constraints of very unusual modern life have fallen away. Um, that, that idea was really brought home to me by an article that I read last year in the uh, New Republic by Steven Pinker, in which he reports the completely stunning and mostly baffling precipitous decline in violence uh, worldwide in recent history. Now, the, the essay, I have to say, and you have to go see it, uh, uh, completely rocked my world and made my already you know, quite Whiggish tendencies uh, that much stronger. Um, oh, dramatic. I do have visual effects. More yeah. dramatic. Yeah. I'll try to speak in a more uh, dramatic voice. Um, so I'm going to quote some of what Pinker said. I think you might be leaning on the lights over there, sir. Yeah. It, it, oh, yeah, it, it happens about every forum, so we need to figure out some way to... That's a situational variable. Yeah, a little dome over the light switch or something. Um, so let me quote a little bit from Pinker's essay and see if you find it as stunning as I did. Uh, and quoting now. The decline of violence is a fractal phenomenon visible at the scale of millennia, centuries, decades, and years. It applies over several orders of magnitude of violence, from genocide to war to rioting to homicide to the treatment of children and animals. And it appears to be a worldwide trend, though not a homogenous one. The leading edge has been in Western societies, especially England and Holland, and there seem to be, seems to have been a tipping point at the onset of the Age of Reason in the early 17th century. At the widest angle view, one can see a whopping difference across the millennia that separates us from our pre-state ancestors. Contra-leftist anthropologists who celebrate the noble savage, the noble savage, quantitative body counts, such as the proportion of prehistoric skeletons with axe marks and embedded arrowheads, or the proportion of men in a contemporary foraging tribe who die at the hands of other men, suggest that pre-state societies were far more violent than our own. It's true that raids and battles killed a tiny percentage of the members that die in modern warfare, but in tribal violence, the clashes are more frequent. The percentage of men in the population who fight is greater, and the rates of death per battle are higher. According to anthropologists like Lawrence Keeley, Stephen LeBlanc, Philip Walker, Bruce Nauf, these factors combine to yield population-wide rates of death in tribal warfare that dwarf those of modern times. If the wars of the 20th century had killed the same proportion of the population that die in the wars of a typical tribal society, there would have been 2 billion deaths, not 100 million. That's incredibly striking. And Pinker goes on to say that this decline keeps, it seems to be going century by century, decade by decade, and it seems to be sort of even accelerating over time. So he quotes, meanwhile, according to political scientist Barbara Harf, between 1989 and 2005, the number of campaigns of mass killings of civilians decreased by 90%. Right? It's a really puzzling phenomenon. That's uh, completely amazing. Uh, now, I've heard uh, some 
proponents of the Iraq war lament that we've lost the cultural will to send tens of thousands of young men and women through the meat grinder of war. And I think they're right. The culture has changed. We are less willing both to kill and to die. Uh, But obviously, I think that's worth celebrating, not lamenting. Um, The Iraq war has already cost more in real terms than the Vietnam or Korean wars. but it has been much, much, much less deadly. And there's probably a good reason for that. And I think part of the reason is that we demand it. Um, But it's not clear to me that we're becoming, in some sense, more heroic. So here's where I become wildly conjectural, and I'll try to make it quick. Um, uh, I'm sold on the idea that the explanation of behavior is complex, and that individual dispositions, uh, personality, character, virtue, are only part of the story. I think the evidence presented by Professor Zimbardo and other social psychologists to the effect that context shapes behavior is fairly overwhelming. Um, I think a lot of things are deeply culturally constructed. I don't think, like Hayek, the person whom this uh, auditorium is named after, I don't think that the norms of rationality, for example, uh, natively govern the human mind, but are an emergent set of cultural norms that arise in a particular social context to coordinate our natural capacities. Um, Likewise, I tend to think that character has a great deal to do with the internalization of certain kinds of contingent social norms uh, that may simply evaporate given a sudden discontinuity in social context. As Professor Zimbardo says, whether there are bad apples often depends on the barrels, and the overall social system is a mass manufacturer of apple barrels. My conjecture is that the interrelated advance of economic growth and the spread of liberal cultural norms is, in effect, creating better apples by manufacturing better barrels. That's why there is less violence and death. To put it sharply and contentiously, liberal capitalism is slowly ridding the world of evil. And my time is up. I have more to say, but I'll just stop there. Yeah, that one can't be blamed on you. Uh, Julian, you have about 10 minutes. Sure. Let me just thank Cato again for uh, asking me to come here. My delight at uh, sharing a stage with a sort of titan of modern social psychology is only uh, slightly tempered by my trepidation at presuming to comment on him. Um, I, I'm actually especially glad, despite the, or actually because of the kind of challenge that Jason mentioned in his introductory remarks to see Professor uh, Zimbardo speaking here. Uh, in part because I do think uh, uh, libertarians, uh, which, a group in which I include myself, have a tendency to think about power uh, in an excessively top-down way, to think of power as something that is exercised by someone on someone else through threats, uh, and to think less in terms of what uh, uh, Michel Foucault called the uh, corpuscular or interstitial power, uh, which sort of manifests itself not... Uh, you know, in the actions of one person over another, but in sort of relationships between people and uh, institutions, sort of exercises itself uh, more invisibly. And I think it is important sort of as a program um, for people who are interested in you know, centrally freedom and coercion um, to, to begin exploring that conception more fully. Um, there's also the question of, of what we should conclude about responsibility from this. And if I can riff a, a bit on Will's remarks, um, I think... Hayek uh, also had uh, a parallel analysis of the, the problem of free will that may be useful here. Um, so Hayek 
was discussing the question of whether um, to, in order to hold people responsible, as is commonly believed, we need to believe in a sort of metaphysically dubious radical free will. Uh, and Hayek said, well, no, that, that, that makes no sense. Indeed, if people were radically free, if people really had uh, you know, this kind of metaphysically powerful free will, it would make no sense to hold them responsible. Why would, you, why would you hold people responsible for bad actions unless you thought you could condition their actions in some way by holding them responsible if you thought, to some, in some sense, they were going to be unfree? Uh, and I think for the same reason, in, in a sense, insofar as the results of social psychology lead us to doubt the extent to which people's actions are fully free or a, a result of, of their character as opposed to the situations in which they're placed, um, we should consider whether they're held responsible, whether or not that's sort of objectively justifiable um, as, as an important component of the situation. I think it's worth observing that um, when Professor Zimbardo describes how he finally ended the experiment, it was when someone came and did not say, well, I see that you have uh, you know, been conditioned by the scripts of prison superintendent and uh, uh, impartial experimenter. They said, no, what, what are you doing, you terrible person who I don't want to date anymore? <laughs> um, uh, anyway, and, and indeed, I think you, you find the same thing. Uh, if you look at um, cross-cultural studies of uh, stuff like Solomon, Solomon Ash's um, work on uh, conformity and perception, the question is basically like, will people falsify their own perception, or at least their reports of their own perception, um, if everybody else in the group is saying that they see A when it's really B? Uh, and you do tend to find that, that uh, cultures that rank higher on uh, values like individualism show not a great deal more, but, but uh, uh, somewhat more disposition to, uh, to report the, 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 you know, sort of the veridical fact. Um, So I, I hesitate a little bit to try and bring things back to the individual, but I, I want to note that a lot of the work in social psychology that has so powerfully emphasized uh, the power of the situation doesn't look as closely uh, at the features of the people who don't go along, you know, the, the, the people who didn't turn the, the shock dial all the way down. Uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. In part, uh, it's because our tendency is already to look too much at individual character as an explanation and not enough uh, at the situation. So, so sort of the counterintuitive and important result there is the power of the situation and not how some individuals sometimes resist it, however they do so. Um, but I think it's, it's uh, at least worth some examination of, of this. Obviously, you know, we'd rather not have a Holocaust than have a lot of Oscar Schindlers and, uh, uh, and Raul Wallenbergs. Um, but I think it is sort of interesting to look at what it is that triggers uh, people to sometimes break out of situations when others tend to be going along. Um, and, you know, it's sort of a commonplace, again, of this sort of research, that there isn't some kind of, uh, you know, heroic personality in general. There isn't something about those people, or at least not one thing about those people. Um, and I think a lot of the this, this search for some feature that distinguishes these people may have foundered in part um, because there are a lot of different kinds of people who are triggered uh, by different features of situations to sort of wake up from, from the spell. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't patterns. There's a very interesting book from the late 80s uh, by Kelman and Hamilton called Crimes of Obedience um, that investigated people's opinions about the Milai massacre. 
And they found a pattern of responses that correlated pretty closely to um, the psychologist Lawrence Kohlberg's breakdown of moral stages. Right? There are some people who orient themselves primarily in terms of uh, instrumental thinking. Uh, what, are, what are the consequences for me? Will I be punished if I do this? Um, you know, will I feel bad about this? Um, there are people who orient themselves primarily in terms of social expectations. And then uh, you know, there are a few people who orient themselves primarily in terms of reference to some abstract set of principles. Um, and there are different features that trigger uh, the reactions of these people either to, uh, to comply or to resist. Um, in the Holocaust, which is probably the most studied case of people resisting, um, you often find altruism or egolessness associated with rescuing behavior. Um, there's a famous book by, by the owners called The Altruistic Personality, looking at um, helpers and rescuers in the Holocaust. I think it's a little more complicated than that. I think if I can, if I can uh, shamelessly plagiarize Homer Simpson on the topic of alcohol, I think um, we find that altruism is, is uh, the cause of and solution to all life's problems. Uh, in that the same mechanisms, the same biologically rooted mechanisms that lead us to identify with groups larger than ourselves um, are both the fundamental roots of compliance uh, with toxic authority and the fundamental roots of resistance to it. Um, so, for example... Uh, in, in, the, in the case of the Holocaust, again, on the other side, if you look at the Nazi doctors who um, assisted in the selection of people to be killed, you find that a lot of them were, uh, you know, understandably not thrilled about this prospect at first. Uh, and what they were often told was something to the effect of, and I'm drawing here on Robert J. Lefton's excellent book, um, The Nazi Doctors, uh, what they were told is, look, you need to put aside your selfish squeamishness and do this in the service of the greater glory of Germany. Um, again, in, in the uh, uh, the... Police Reserve Battalion 101, the sort of the ordinary men who carried out uh, brutal killings of, uh, of, of Jewish civilians. Um, what you found is that a lot of they were basically given the option initially whether or not to take part in these killings. And there were many who at first resisted uh, and then began to feel guilty because they were leaving their fellow soldiers with the burden of doing this terrible work. Um, so again, there's a situation where... where um, that impulse to identify with others cuts in different directions depending on, obviously, the scope of, of identification. Um, and all of, all of our dispositions to both hierarchy and, and resistance um, are ultimately biologically, biologically rooted. There are complex uh, social structures that are built upon those that determine the final shape of our reaction uh, to hierarchy. Um, but the, you know, the underlying root here, uh, which in a sense is, is the root of altruism, is... is uh, you know, this, the, the, the leapfrog uh, of these systems on um, the basic disposition to look around and treat your kin, those likely to be biologically related to you, as in some way as though their interests are your own. Um, but you also see, uh, uh, you know, biological roots of resistance. This is actually a really interesting study by uh, the primatologist Franz de Waal, where he finds that chimps um, have obviously, you know, very... Uh, rigid social hierarchies, but they also have, in a sense, ritualized methods of resistance, not just dominant struggle, which is, which is typical, um, but also a, vocal, a specific vocalization called the wah cry, where when an alpha is overextending himself, often one of the, the females will make this particular cry, a wah, and it, it gets picked up by the crowd. It's an appeal to the crowd, not to overthrow the authority, but to recognize uh, it's, that it's exceeded its proper boundaries. Um, so this is, to some extent, um, helpful. And, I, uh, and in those situations, in situations of direct personal helping that we find in the Holocaust, um, what are the features you see? 
in rescuers? Well, in those cases, you see a lot of skin talk. You see people saying things like, well, you know, I, I, uh, I saw the Jew that was about to be taken away, and her hands were very much the same as mine. You heard the same thing from Rumiya Dallaire, the UN general who disobeyed orders to stay and protect uh, Rwandans from the genocidaires. He said he looked into the eyes of this child, and he reminded him of his own son's eyes. Um, this visceral reaction is incredibly common in cases that involve resistance through direct, close-up helping. Um, this may be why Hannah Arendt used to say that the... Um, the people you can count on when the chips are down are not the ones who say, I won't, but the ones who say, I can't. Um, uh, and this is sort of borne out in a sense by um, fMRI research on how we process moral dilemmas, right? There's totally different parts of the brain that uh, in, are, you know, are involved in acting on a kind of hard and fast rule about not harming others and the part of the brain that does trade-offs involving when you harm one person to advance the greater good. And so it's, it's, I think, telling that in those cases, what you most often see is that the people who resist are not the ones, in a sense, who are, uh, well, as Professor Barber was saying, are, are, the most, uh, are the most banal ones. They're not the ones who come to a moral conclusion. They're the ones who have a direct, thoughtless reaction that impels them to help. Um, but in other cases, you see very different patterns. In the case of corporate whistleblowers, uh, Fred Alford has done work showing that those people tend to be um, what he called moralized narcissists, people with high but fragile self-esteem um, who are bad at doubling, who are bad at com compartmentalizing their personalities, which is one of the, the features of Nazi doctors who were cooperative that, that Robert J. Lifton writes about. Um, they're not very good because they're narcissists of separating out who I am at work, who I am at home, who I am at church. They feel tainted by the actions of a group that they disagree with um, or that, they, that don't meet the standards that they adhere to in other parts of life, and so they feel compelled uh, to act out against them. Um, if there is a commonality across these things, it's that the management of identity seems to be key to uh, both compliance and resistance. The people who disobey tend to be the ones who have some other identity than the one that the group uh, uh, that's doing the bad thing is imposing to fall back on either a greater human identity or uh, you know some alternative group. As a communist, I will resist these Nazis. As a Catholic, I'll resist these communists. Um, which, uh, as a, a final schematic remark, uh, gives me some hope that in the same way that, for example, the, the Gutenberg Revolution um, created the potential for alternative sources of authority that undermined. Uh, the monopoly of the church, that the ability of network technologies to keep us in constant contact with a series of non-geographical uh, and overlapping but discrete identities will multiply the resources that are available to us um, to allow us to step outside the tyranny of the situation and to decide which situation and which identity uh, we, will, we, will, we, will, we will make our own. Uh, thank you, uh, Julian and Will and Dr. Zimbardo. We have, we have time for some questions. Uh, the general guidelines here are uh, wait for a microphone. One will come to you. Uh, say your name and your affiliation and ask a brief question uh, and make it, a, make it a question, not, uh, not a commentary. Uh, so let's see here. Uh, let's start in the front. Thank you so much for a brilliant pro uh, 
presentation. I appreciate that very much. Many people have made the analogy between the Jewish Holocaust and the abortion Holocaust today. 50 million legal for all nine months of pregnancy, abortion in all 50 states. And just a brief comment and then a question to the professor. I think it's the same. We can depersonalize an embryo or a fetus by calling them an embryo or a fetus instead of an innocent preborn baby. And the other point is dehumanizing the victim themselves. Obviously, we can easily take a person's life if we feel that they are a non-entity. And my question is, do you feel that this is a valid uh, consideration? Uh, for instance, in the last week, I, I go to Planned Parenthood three times a week. I met a young girl who had five abortions. The next day, I met a girl who had four abortions in the last two years and was going in for her fifth. The next day, a young woman who had 11 abortions. So it's used very cavalierly. Would you make any comments that you would like on this issue, please? I'm not sure exactly what the question is. Well, if you'd like to, to, to say you know, something briefly and then maybe we can move on to... Yeah, I, I think you're talking about a political question of, you know, you know, does a woman have the right to decide whether she gives birth to a, a human being or not? Or does the society have the right to limit her choice. So again, I think for me, the issue is, you know, where does individual rights over your reproductive system clash with some society values that say, you know, uh, you're not entitled to have an abortion. You must follow through and, and give birth to, to a child. Um, and in some cases, these are, these are, uh, Births of, of incest, of, of you know, under under you know conditions that are less than ideal. The last thing in the world I want is a child who's born without a child without love, without love of a parent, without adequate facilities for that child to be taken care of. There are too many children in the world who are living in poverty, who are living without love, and those children be, often become threats to society. You know, because. You know, for them, there is no future. There is no hope. Uh, they, you know, they are the saddest thing in the world, especially if you, if, you go to, if you go to ghetto neighborhoods, if you go in different parts of the world. So again, I mean, my position is that each individual should have the right to make that decision based on the best available uh, evidence, the best available resources. That's all. all right. Uh, let's uh, take somebody from... You had a question. The- Oh, okay. Oh, my uh, is, Mike, <laughs> go right ahead. We'll we'll get to you in the in the blue shirt next. Oh, up and what became yes. of the prison guards? What? How did that affect them for the rest of their lives? Because they're the people I'm most concerned about. Oh no! I mean, of course we did follow ups. I mean, given that I was rushed, we spent a whole day in debriefing. First, all the prisoners got together and vented. Then all the guards. Then all the guards and prisoners got together for a whole day. I was able to say that all of us did bad things, especially me. Because it was a group situation, see, unlike the Milgram study, that, that at the end they said, you know, you were like most other people. You didn't see that. In this study, you saw everybody doing these bad things. And I was saying, we chose you because you were normal and healthy, and so your bad behavior like mine is diagnostic of the power of the situation, not diagnostic of your pathology. 
We followed them. They all came back two weeks later. They came back a month later. I'm still in contact with some of them. Because we picked kids who were so normal and healthy to begin with, and because they were in such a bizarre setting, when they took off the uniform, when they left that place, there was no negative after effects. They, they were able to forgive themselves Yeah, because essentially we were saying that there's no question you did bad shit. There's no question I did bad things. But it was because we were in this setting. So the key is you have to realize you have to avoid these kinds of settings. Some of you, you know, liked the power. And so that means probably you should avoid those situations because in your real life you could redo that. The boy who had 8612, the boy, the first boy to break down, it changed his whole life in the following way. He was an 18-year-old anti-war activist at Berkeley, and he had never lost control of himself. He went on to get a PhD in clinical psychology. His dissertation was on shame and guilt, the shame of the prisons, the guilt of the guards. He did his internship at San Quentin Prison, and for the last 25 years, he's been the prison psychologist in the San Francisco County Jail. The movie we made, we called it Quiet Rage, because when my students interviewed, I didn't even know, he didn't say, hey, Dr. Z. My students interviewed him, and he said, you know, my whole career has been, how do you elevate prisoners from the status that they have of a loss of dignity? And how do you suppress the sadistic impulse of the guards? Because it's part of the role. To be sadistic, it's permitted, it's allowed. And so he said, the sadism of the guards is a quiet rage that if you if you don't are not aware of it, it slips out sideways. And so 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 here's this unethical experiment that had this enormous positive positive effect. And we followed the guards. Ver- the problem is, as I said, this infinite capacity to justify. So the worst guard, Dave Eshelman, uh, the, the kids call him John Wayne. He says, he said, I was doing some experiments of my own. I wanted to see how far I could push people because I wanted them to rebel. And when they rebelled, I would stop. But they never rebelled. And so he said, I lost respect for them. And I, I, only, I only was worse and worse. I think that's a justification after the fact. So he's not that he feels guilty now. He's a mortgage broker. He's got three kids. He's a family man. You know, he belongs to the you know, the local Masonic thing. You know, so, so he went back to being, you know, in quote, an ordinary guy. Uh, yes, uh, gentlemen in the back, you. Yeah, you. Hi, uh, Steve Fritzinger, Fairfax, Virginia. Um, both uh, Dr. Zimbardo and both of the commentators talked a lot about the effects of amenity in enabling this and in connecting with people um, in order to break the cycle or to elicit heroism. I think it was the philosopher Peter Singer who wrote The Expanding Circle, arguing that over time, the uh, wall that we put between us and them has gotten larger and larger, and the circle we use to... Um, to differentiate who we grant human rights to and who we identify with has gotten bigger. And I think Mr. Wilkinson's point um, about violence over the the millennium uh, contrasted with Mr. Sanchez's point about the Nazi guards who necked down their circle just to the people in their immediate area uh, might reinforce that. And I'd just be interested in hearing your comments on that kind of an idea as an explanation for these trends. Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree more, is that one of the consequences of my experience in the prison study and, you know, the other research on anonymity is I work every day to make every person I meet feel special about themselves. That is, 
I work consciously knowing how easy it is to treat somebody anonymously. Uh, And so, you know, I work to find some way I could compliment you about something justifiably. I just came back from, from a mountain village where my ancestors came from in Sicily. And I'm so struck by the difference. Everybody says buongiorno, buonasera, buonanotte. People, people kiss. I mean, you know, and they kiss in the morning. And we don't do that. People don't even say hello. I mean, I go to Stanford. You know, you know I'm a famous professor. Students, they don't even say hello. They look, you know, they nod. They barely, you know. <laughs> now, if I went on the internet, they, they'd have a big thing. But we've really lost the capacity, I think, for this interpersonal contact. Essentially saying, you are special because you exist. You're special, you know, because you want to share your ideas with me. Um, you know, again, I did a lot of research earlier on shyness. And shy people are desperate, desperately want somebody to notice them. I mean, they walk around feeling anonymous. They make themselves anonymous. But then, because they do, nobody takes the time to single them out. This little Korean kid at Virginia Tech... What did he say in that video? He said, he, said, he said, for two years, nobody spoke to me. You know, you ignored me. I was nothing until I had a gun and started shooting. Suddenly, I, beca- I became important. And, you know, at, and the same thing at, at Columbine. In all these cases, these are kids who were marginalized that in that setting, these are kids who live there. I mean, it's not like a commuting car. They live there. They eat together. They're in the dormitory. And a kid could go for two years and nobody talks to you, you know. And so what he's saying is everybody wants to feel special, at least to somebody. And so my sense is that is an obligation that you have, that for all the people you come in contact with, you think, what is it I can do to avoid myself treating you as an object, treating you as a student, treating you as you know, an ordinary person? One of the exercises I give my kids, I say, how many of you are willing to bet on the eye color of the person who served you this morning in, in, in your dormitory? You know, how many of you are willing to put up a hundred bucks to say what, what eye color that was? Because we're going to go and check. They don't know, because it's somebody who serves them. It's not a person. It's it's the hasher. And and so I'm saying, so at this level, you know, each person you meet, what what can you do to make them special? Well, you look in their eyes. You look look at who they are. You ask a question. How are you? You know, uh, you know, you want to know. You know, do you have kids? What are your kids doing? You know, something that that personalizes each, each individual. And hopefully, you give the information that they're going to personalize you. Uh, so my sense is you got to work at breaking that, that the ease with which you treat people anonymously because they're going to treat you the same way. Part of my job here is to hand out little notes to the presenters, okay. telling them when their time is up. And That's I just I got a, handed yeah, a note telling <laughs> me that my time was up. Uh, so we have time for one more question. Uh, this uh, gentleman right here. Yes, you. You, not behind you, you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Dr. Zimbardo, you mentioned in passing something that struck me as really curious and worthy of investigation. You mentioned you stopped your experiment because your fiancé found the behavior repulsive. Right. And I'm reminded of... My behavior, yeah. Yes. The counterexample of Naboth, uh, of, of Ahab and Jezebel, where... King Ahab in think, think it's first book of Kings was initially was not going to confiscate Naboth's vineyard, but Jezebel humiliated him and said, "What kind of king you make?" And this led to her making false accusations, and so there were op- opposite bookends. My question is: Has any study been done of a how someone's primary relationship and the possible loss influences their behavior in a crisis? 
No. no. I mean, not that I know of. I mean, I mean, it's, it's, re- it's really an interesting question because you're saying, you know, the people who influence you most are the people you live with. I mean, your husband, your wife, your father. I mean, kids, kids end up having the same religion as their parents more often than not, the same political ideology, even though parents say, no, we, we don't indoctrinate. Well, you know, we know that's, that's not true. Uh, there's an old study at Bennington College which shows, you know, uh, these rich girls who went to Bennington College, this very liberal college, in a short time adopted the liberal attitudes of the faculty. The few who didn't were the ones who ended up marrying conservative guys. Uh, and so here's a setting in which people's attitudes have changed, but it's not willy-nilly. It's that in order to maintain a conservative view that they came in with their parents, they had to marry a conservative guy, you know, and, and embrace conservative values. Um, but that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, if you know if there are any studies like that where, you know, that you can show that, that people who present totally opposite perspectives on, you know, be a, be a hero or be a villain uh, have that impact. Um, the, the last thing I, I just want to say is um, in, in terms of the question of there's very little research on people who resist, people who didn't go along with Milgram, people who, did, who didn't. Uh, and, and that's one of the things that I'm trying to do is to say just resisting doesn't make you a hero. When you quit the Milgram experiment, you get your ass out of there. The thing goes on. To be a hero, you have to blow the whistle on the experiment. You have to go to the dean, you have to go to the chairman of the department and say something immoral, illegal is happening. So that just getting out of the situation, just resisting, that gets you out is not enough because you're not changing the bad or evil uh, situation. You have to go to the next step and take, and this and essentially take a political action. Uh, and again, how do we teach kids, how do we teach kids that? You know, the, the basic message of obedience to authority, I'm saying, starts with the Bible. It's reinforced by first grade teachers. It's reinforced in the synagogue. It's reinforced throughout. What we never teach kids is how do you make the distinction between authority that is just, that deserves your respect, and authority that is unjust, that you have to defy. And for me, that's a critical distinction. And I don't know anywhere in our society that does that. You know, and I think that's the kind of thing that you would... Step one in any hero course to say, and I just gave a talk at West Point, and I end the talk with, all of you are about obeying the authority, but you have to realize that in general, where the authority is just, then you should obey. Where your authority, where your senior office is unjust, gives you a command which you know is illegal, immoral, you have to resist it, knowing it's going to cost you. Because ultimately, when you take off the uniform, you're going to be an individual. You're going to be a person who has to be accountable for your behavior. And I got a standing ovation from the cadets, not from the officers. They charge. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Zimbardo. And, and uh, we will have a, uh, an informal discussion and book signing upstairs.